Merry Christmas, everybody. That's the spirit, Mike. Not that you guys are, you know, like competing with Mike up there, but he sounded a little more enthusiastic, so I chose to go with him. Is everyone, how was your weekend? Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> I'm no longer talking to you, Mike. Was that you up there? I was asking these guys. I went and saw uh, Rogue One twice in a 24-hour period. I felt like that was important. Um, thanks. Yeah. Um, still processing. But as you guys know, as per my ethical standards, I'm not going to share anything about the movie with you because any details would be spoilers. And what kind of depraved lunatic would I be if I spoiled the movie for you? So open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9. Um, if we've yet to meet, by the way, after I talk to you about my stance on spoilers and Star Wars, um, my name is Josh. I'm one of the leaders here at Fan City Church. My job specifically is to, uh, in the language of the scriptures, to sort of shepherd or guide the teaching and the vision for Van City Church. And we are now reaching the end of a vision series intended to sort of redesign our church around this concept of discipleship, or put another way, uh, apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. If you're new or if you've missed uh, a few weeks here and there, please, by all means, go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, I really feel like there's some crucial stuff here for us in the coming year and in the years to come. As we move into this new year, 2017, we will continue to sort of reorient our church uh, in the direction of practicing the way of Jesus together in Vancouver. Because, as you should know well enough by now, the goal of every apprentice to Jesus is threefold. So say these out loud with me. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. Together, these three goals represent a lifelong endeavor. Following Jesus is not a weekend retreat, it's not a seminar or a hobby or a merely an, an aspect of the disciples' personhood. Following Jesus is the disciples' personhood. So for the apprentice, Practicing the way of Jesus is the reason for getting out of bed and the locomotion that sort of compels every thought, every word, every deed. At least that's what we're working toward. We acknowledge that many of us, myself included, are not there yet. Now, as we've said throughout the series, accomplishing such a, a comprehensive state of discipleship is more than a little challenging and the over-busy, digitally addicted, stressed out, rationally um, uh, stunted, relationally stunted, emotionally immature, and unhealthy world in which most of us live. So how does the modern disciple of Jesus rise to the challenge? Tonight, the idea is that we're going to draw our attention to that question specifically as we near the conclusion of the vision series. So let's begin with Luke's biography of Jesus, chapter 9, and let's read beginning with verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? Crowds is another way of saying people who are not disciples of Jesus. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus asked, meaning his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. That line could be translated uh, anointed one or even king. Uh, Peter is saying, you are the long-awaited anointed king of Israel. Verse 21, 
Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man, so a way of referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, get this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. The invitation to become a disciple of Jesus offered freely to all people has been a subject of focus for the last few months. That much is clear. But notice this. Here Jesus speaks candidly about what must happen before this invitation to discipleship can be accepted. Deny yourself and take up your cross. At the center of apprenticeship to Jesus is a symbol, and that symbol is the cross. Of course, we've spent 2,000 some odd years numbing and desensitizing ourselves to the horrific reality represented by these two intersecting lines, immediately recognizable as basically the logo for Christianity now. Crucifixion, though, was represented in history hundreds of years prior to the execution of Jesus, but the Roman Empire is said by historians to sort of perfect the art of crucifixion as no one had before. In fact, one historian I read this week, Joel Green, said it like this, among the torturous penalties noted in the literature of antiquity, crucifixion was particularly heinous. The act itself damaged no vital organs, nor did it result in excessive bleeding. Hence, death came slowly, sometimes after several days, through shock or a painful process of asphyxiation as the muscles used in breathing suffered increasing fatigue. Often, as a further disgrace, the person was denied burial and the body was left on the cross to serve as a carrion for the birds or to rot. Crucifixion was quintessentially a public affair, naked and affixed to a stake, cross, or tree. The victim was subjected to savage ridicule by frequent passerby, while the general populace was given a grim reminder of the fate of those who assert themselves against the authority of the state. Remember, the world of the ancient Near East is an uh, honor-shame society, and there was no genre of death more shameful than the cross. In fact, it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen regardless of the crime. Um, such a cruel fate was sort of reserved for foreigners or for the dregs of society. We think this may be one of the reasons that the gospel authors describe the death of Jesus without detail. They simply cannot bring themselves to do so. Instead, they write, and they crucified him, and they leave it at that. It was a death so cruel, so barbaric, so embarrassing and grotesque that it turned stomachs and grinded conversations to a halt. So imagine today uh, some revolutionary leader who's taken captive by ISIS or some comparable terrorist cell, and he's led away uh, at the muzzle of an AK-47, and then imagine eventually a wealth of YouTube videos circulating virally online in which this leader is stripped naked and beaten and abused for days before his head is sawed from his body with a dull machete and set slack-faced on the bleeding stump of his lifeless torso for the world to see. Then imagine that the machete and the AK-47 became branding, that it became a print for leggings, or the emblem of jewelry for a necklace, or the subject of t-shirts and sunglasses for a family bookstore. Alternately, imagine this. 
Imagine a world in which the cross has not been sanitized and yet domesticated at all. And imagine how subversive, how, how, how counterintuitive and upside down a movement of people that would make the machete and the AK-47 the symbol for the movement of their executed leader. As if the gesture was to say, your symbol of death and disgrace is our symbol of life and of victory. Such is the scandal of the cross and the great scandal of Jesus' invitation to come, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus' invitation, paraphrase, is essentially this. If you really want to live, then first you are going to have to die. And for many apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth throughout history and even today, that death that Jesus refers to is actually a literal one, whether the great martyrs of church history or our brothers and sisters uh, in Jesus killed daily even now in the Middle Eastern world. But before any of them, there was James who was decapitated in Jerusalem by Herod. There was Matthew who was felled by the sword in Ethiopia. There was Mark who was dragged through the streets of Alexandria, fastened to the backs of uh, galloping horses. Luke uh, was hanged until dead in Greece. Thomas was impaled on a spear in India. John was dipped alive in boiling oil and then left to infect and rot on a rock in the Mediterranean. And of course, Peter, the rock on which Jesus promised to build his church. Peter, like Jesus, was crucified, but upside down, allegedly at the request of Peter himself, who thought that he was unworthy of dying just as Jesus had died. And, and oh man, how I hope that should I ever face such a day, I would go as willingly to death for my Lord as most faithful disciples have throughout history. Of course, for most of us here in the Western world, the call of Jesus is not to a literal death. The chances are very slim. It is to a figurative death. In fact, just to lighten the mood for a second, here is a completely free uh, lesson in grammar. If you guys are any, I don't know if there are any grammar enthusiasts in the house. 99.9% .9 of the time, when you hear an English-speaking American human person say the word literally, what they actually mean is figuratively, <laughs> which is the opposite of that word, in fact. Uh, so I would just, as a suggestion, if you're inclined at any point to say that word, um, just go with figuratively just in case. Uh, chances are it is the word that you're looking for. Just try it, and if anyone says, what, that's not figurative, be like, oh, I was just kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was for free, just for you guys. The call of Jesus for most uh, disciples in the Western world is to a figurative death, or in the language of Jesus himself, it is to self-denial. Because make no mistake, saying yes to Jesus or to the way of Jesus, to practicing the way of Jesus, necessitates saying no to a litany of alternate desires. Yes to Jesus means no to spending your time and your money however you'd like. Yes to Jesus means no to a life of privatized individualism. Yes to Jesus means no to the expression of your sexuality however you're inclined and in whatever way makes sense to you. The cross means whatever, whatever Jesus says to do, we will do. Whatever, wherever Jesus says to go, we will go, and whenever Jesus says do or go, we will do so then. I read this book, uh, this uh, historian this week that talked about the way that the Knights Templar during the Crusades, they were baptized in full armor, apparently, which is weird enough. 
Um, but during the, the, the rite of baptism, they would hold their swords above their heads out of the water as this uh, acknowledgement of their reluctance to give everything over to the way of Jesus. So they, the idea is that they're saying like, well, he can have all of me, but I will keep the sword. Uh, and of course, you know, such a deliberately defiant gesture sounds outrageous to many of us, but I would argue the only real difference between uh, the gesture of the knights and us is honesty, if, if we think about it. Um, were we somehow forced to honesty, then I imagine we would probably do the same thing. We'd be immersed in the waters of baptism, and our hand would be outstretched above us, gripping a dry wallet, maybe, you know. Um, you can have all of me except for my spending habits. Or, or maybe we'd be holding a gun, the right to self-protection, which wouldn't be all that dissimilar to the knights in question. Perhaps it would be a schedule or a relationship or a shopping habit or a career or a sexual identity or an iPhone, whatever it might be. You can have all of me except this one thing. John Wesley, a great hero of the faith and a favorite of mine personally, put it this way. His one desire is the one design of his life, Jesus, namely, not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus' one intention at all times and in all things, not to please himself, but him who his soul loveth. He has a single eye, and because his eye is single, his whole body is full of light, his focus is sharp. Indeed, where the loving eye of the soul is continually fixed upon God, when your focus is set on the Father, there can be no darkness at all. But the whole is light. All of you is light. As when bright shining of a candle doeth enlighten the house, God then reigns alone. Life shaped around the beauty and the horror of the cross. Not once, but daily, again and again and again, in fact, this invitation to self-denial shows up in all four Gospels, but interesting, Luke's is the only one that adds the word daily. Luke was more hardcore than everyone else, apparently. Um, the cross is, is a way of life. It's not a one-off. The cross is the daily death of what the New Testament authors call the flesh. This is why the following passage from Galatians 5 has become key in our conversation around apprenticeship. Paul writes, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next slide. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The flesh represents the accumulation of what Harry Frankfurt uh, called first-order desires. These are your sort of base 
primal animal desires for food or water or sleep or conquest or sex or self-preservation. And these basic desires, not necessarily in and of themselves evil, have been warped by sin. And thus they manifest themselves in the forms that are indexed by Paul, sexual immorality and impurity and so on. And yet, within each apprentice of Jesus, animated by the Holy Spirit, is the desire to want something more, to want love and joy and peace. And so, we basically war daily, torn between the two. This is why the apprentice of Jesus is called to crucify, as it were, the flesh, our first-order desires, in order to experience what Jesus called life to the fullest. And the flesh isn't the only subject of continual death. Every day, we face the repeated surfacing of desires that are not inherently sinful per se, but that nevertheless interfere with or contradict the specificity of Jesus' direction on your life in particular. So this is a silly little example uh, because it's an easy one. But uh, I would like to, if it were up to me, skateboard every day, right? It's a lot of fun for me personally, and it's a good thing when it doesn't land you in the ER as it has to me before. Most times it doesn't. Um, and even so, in order for me, just as a basic healthy human being, to accomplish the work that Jesus has for me to do and to be present with my family, I just can't make time right now to go skateboarding every single day, much as I would like to. That's one small example. Uh, we may also be made to choose between something way more drastic like careers. You can't pick this one if you want to follow Jesus or, or cities in which you live. If you're going to follow Jesus, he's going to live you all, lead you all the way across the country or something like that or to the developing world. You never know. Or, or maybe a group of friends. If you want to continue doing the thing that Jesus has called you to do, you're going to have to move yourself into a new season of relationships. Um, not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but drastically different nonetheless. The cross then is the foundation of apprenticeship to Jesus and to transformation into his image. So apprenticing Jesus involves the ongoing death of desire that it might be substituted with a new and better desire that's often completely beyond us and comes from the Spirit. And there's a sequence to things if you pay attention to the wording of Jesus. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, so someone, anyone in the world, wants to accept this invitation of Jesus to become an apprentice of his, welcome. You're absolutely welcome to do so. First things first, Jesus goes on. Whoever wants to be my disciple must as in this is like not optional, you're going to have to do this if you want to be my disciple, they must deny themselves. As in this is step one. Movement number one for the apprentice of Jesus is self-denial, which brings me to everyone's favorite moment in the teaching, the inevitable Dallas Willard quote. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> Self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God. I love how frank that is. Self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God, better described as death to self. In this, and this alone, lies the key to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self and cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained. What he means is that until we establish self-denial as the first and an ongoing step in discipleship, we will never experience true transformation. If you really want to live, 
first you're going to have to die. Of course, for a great many people, such a command is simply too much to ask. If you've still got your Bibles, let's look at the Gospel of Luke again, and uh, let's read from chapter 9, this time beginning in verse 57. You guys still with me? Haven't tuned out? Great. Awesome. Uh, Luke 9, beginning with 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The guy's like, okay, thanks. (laughs) Jesus is so cryptic sometimes. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. This is Jesus inviting someone now. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So one man expresses this immediate willingness to follow Jesus, quote, wherever he goes. But then another two come armed with uh, excuses as to why they can't follow, or at least not quite yet. Give them a second, they say. They're, they're basically saying, I will follow you, but first. And how familiar a story this is to each of us. And I think Jesus' language is, is sort of hyperbolic. He's not actually saying, no, no one can say goodbye <laughs> to their family. He's just calling out the elephant in the room that these people aren't prepared to pay the cost of discipleship. Um, we do the exact same thing. We make excuses. We call upon every manner of justification as to why we can't deny ourselves, at least not yet. And notice, belief in Jesus isn't the issue here. The characters in the story believe enough to recognize that they need to follow Jesus and to go up to him and to say as much. And yet, they are unwilling to pay the cost of discipleship. The issue here isn't belief versus unbelief. Um, Believe it or not, belief isn't really a a huge deal in the narrative of the scriptures. In fact, they go so far as to point out that even demons believe in God. It's like a big deal. Um, The issue is discipleship versus a vague, commitment-phobic, consumerist faith that asks for all the benefits, benefits of Jesus with none of the cost. So let's read a bit to understand what Jesus has to say about the cost. Turn over to Luke chapter 14. And once you're in Luke 14, let's read beginning in verse 25. Jesus is about to get crazy. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. Now this sounds funny, but this is an actual strategy of Jesus. Like, oh, the crowds are getting too big. Let me say something crazy and thin the crowds out a little bit. And this is exactly what he's going to do. Verse 26, he says to the crowds, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, again, hyperbolic language. Jesus is not actually asking anyone to hate anyone else. But he is talking about a system of values, meaning if you value these things more than you value me, you cannot do it. It won't work. He goes on, verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. 
won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In this way, Jesus just astounds me. I, I, I love it. It's, uh, he's, he's way more punk rock than I can possibly be. He's no, no sales pitch whatsoever. It's just like, wow, this guy needs new PR. In fact, Jesus encourages people considering the reality of becoming his disciples to, to consider how much it's going to cost them. And the cost, Jesus goes on to say when he's saying, okay, if you're gonna, you've got to be like a guy who's counting how much money it's going to take to build a tower. You need to consider the cost. And by the way, the cost is everything. You who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. This, fundamentally speaking, is a no-brainer, and Jesus realizes many will be yet unwilling to pay such a cost. That is everything. Turn to chapter 18, Luke 18. Let's read just one famous story of someone unwilling to pay that cost. Once you get to Luke 18, look down at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, "'Good teacher,' What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. It's like subtle, Jesus. Verse 20. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. You know the drill. Verse 21. The man says, All these things I have kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, this isn't a command for everyone. I imagine it remains to be a, a command for many. But quick thought experiment before we move on. Gauge your readiness as a disciple with this little mental exercise. Ask yourself, what would you do if commanded by Jesus the exact same thing? Sell everything you have, Give it away, and then you can come and follow me. Does part of you go, oh, God, uh, I, I don't suppose I'm ready to do such a thing. What, I just thought that that was an interesting and, and troubling exercise to do myself. The story goes on, verse 23. When he heard this, the man, the rich man, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The man in the story, the rich young fellow with lots of money and lots of stuff, he cannot bear to lift the weight of his cross because doing so requires that he set down what is most precious in the world to him, which is in this case, his stuff. His stuff is the great obstacle between him and Jesus. And for him to be able to reach Jesus, the obstacle has to be put to death. And each one of us has some obstacle or obstacles 
obstructing our view of Jesus. I would argue that we have new obstacles all the time in our discipleship. Maybe yours is like this young man's, maybe it's money or things, or, or maybe your obstacle is, is sexuality or power or a career or a five-year plan. Maybe it's something else altogether. My point is that for each of us, there's a cost to discipleship, something that must die in order that we might experience the life that Jesus offers. It always, always comes at a cost. And this young man in the story here cannot pay it. He must have possessed some understanding of what he's given up because the text tells us that he went away very sad. And this is a story present in the scriptures, I think, because it happened. This is like a, a you know, historical document in a sense. And because it happens all the time. I have known so many people who, like this young man, have gone away sad. I have seen so many people recognize Jesus as to be who he claims to be, as the king, and yet find themselves unable to lift the burden of their cross. And so they carry on in sadness or they go away sad. It happened and it happens all the time. Maybe that's one reason why the story, the man in the story doesn't have a name, because we're meant to read ourselves into the character. He's, he's you, he's me, I don't know. But the cost of discipleship has always been a, a reality of what it means to apprentice Jesus. I wonder if the cost becomes more expensive the more that we careen headlong into the modern age of technology and addiction and more wealth and, and the political ideology that's, that's wormed its way into the church. And what we're talking about tonight, self-denial, remains amongst the most unpopular of all Jesus' teachings. I've uh, honestly traveled uh, all over the, the world having conversations about Jesus on a near nightly basis with new people, and I can convince, believe me, I can convince young cynical thinkers um, that Jesus is not who he's been made out to be in some way, shape, or form. I can uh, excite people over the nonviolence of Jesus, that he's not this militaristic political figure they've been made to think he was, and they dig that. They're like, oh, awesome. But then... Um, you, you alleviate these misconceptions about who he is and what he said, eventually you will still arrive at self-denial. And the conversation stalls out. I think that we obviously understand why. One author that I read this week put it this way, my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and I want my pain minimized. I want, a manageable, I want manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, a friend of mine read this book a while back uh, from, the, from which that quote was taken, and then they were touched by it, so they, you know, they do what any thinker does. He was tweeting out some lines about it. And the author, um, Sky Jathani, saw the tweet and replied to him and said, this book is why I will never be able to get a job at a megachurch. <laughs> Um, because I think the author recognizes the tension between the mantra of our culture and the invitation of Jesus to deny rather than indulge yourself. 
In his book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor observed a shift in Western culture from what was once uh, a culture of authority, meaning once upon a time, believe it or not, in Western society, uh, authority was generally recognized to be an external thing, meaning it came from somewhere outside of yourself, a God, the Bible, the church, your family, your tradition, your parents, whatever it might be. And yet, Taylor recognized that the Western world had become a self-proclaimed culture of authenticity in which... The ultimate arbiter of right and wrong is now internal rather than external, meaning you are the authority of what is right and wrong. What you think, or perhaps more accurately, how you feel is the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong. So think of the Oprah-esque, you know, Instagram mantra of be authentic, be true to yourself, whatever the heck that means, as if you're so great. Um, Taylor puts it like this, the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or by religious or political authority. The goal for many today is to sort of cast off the shackles of any form of authority in order to become fully realized as the one true authority in an ultimate state of freedom. But that's problematic because freedom has also been redefined in the modern era, in the postmodern and metamodern era. Once freedom was meant to understand or to mean that freedom was the clarity of willpower necessary to recognize and want the right things and then actually accomplish them. And that was freedom. If a person had enough willpower to want the right things and to get them done, they were free. Today, freedom means the ability to do whatever the heck you want. Or in the famous words of occultist Aleister Crowley, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The easy example of this thinking's presence in the church is the sexual liberation gospel in which any form of denying sexual desire is imagined to not only be outdated, but repressive if it's self-imposed and oppressive if it's encouraged by someone else. As if romance or an orgasm were the highest order of human experience, uh, as if the ability to experience either one of them whenever and, whenever and with whomever we please is the only means of a fulfilled life. It's really a ludicrous way of thinking. We live in what is a particularly anti-authoritarian part of the country with uh, a major city, Portland, just minutes over the river. But such a bent is, of course, not unique to Portland. The very idea of America itself was forged in a rejection of outward authority and the promise of appointing ourselves as the ultimate kings and queens of our own destinies. And of course, such a bent is not uniquely American either. For at least uh, three centuries now throughout the West, we've witnessed this rise of anti-royal, anti-authoritarian in the ongoing pursuit of democracy. The English uh, beheaded Charles I, and they established a republic. Instead, the French beheaded King Louis XVI. The, the Russians killed Tsar Nicholas along with all of his children in order to bring his royal lineage to an ultimate end. Westerners prefer democracy. The idea that we can all be our own kings, the notion that we are in charge and in pursuit of and in control of our own destinies. Now, introduce the notion then that Jesus is the true king. 
which is what, amongst other things, that word Christ means. It means king or Messiah or anointed one. That idea is decidedly and thoroughly against the cultural flow in which we live. At the heart of kingship is the premise of recognized, ultimate, external authority. And not only that, but the complete surrender of autonomy and self-control over to someone else that isn't you. The cultural air that we breathe is, I am Lord. But the gospel makes a mutually exclusive counterclaim. Jesus is Lord. Everyone and everything else is not. And you and I feel, I think, we feel that tension all around us every single day. And moreover, we experience that tension in our hearts all the time. At least I, I know that I do. And that tension isn't exclusively out there, you know, in the, in the culture. But it's here as well, within the church, through something that um, for a while we had referred to commonly as the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is the church's way of baptizing the myth of discipleship without the cost. It is, for those uh, of us in the business, what we call posers. The prosperity gospel is for posers. And once, these posers were were easy to identify, you know, the sort of leering porcelain grin of some TV evangelist with a billion people and they all want more money or something like that. It was easy enough. But in recent years, the movement has further permeated the church Uh, by way of church celebrities and vaguely Christian Instagram hipsters and famous songwriters and so on. And uh, I was reading this week again, uh, this is my third time through, the Mark Sayers brilliant book, Disappearing Church, in which he writes this, we subtly imbibe the implicit prosperity gospel through consumerism and advertising, but also through viewing the lives of other Christians who seem to lead amazing, meaningful, pleasure-filled lives. In a church that has pursued the strategy of cultural relevance, we only have to trawl through our Instagram feeds to find pastors, believing musicians, artists, authors, and activists who seem to live incredible lives. These people seem to have the best of both worlds. They follow Jesus and get to travel live in cool neighborhoods, hang with really interesting people, have incredible marriages, or rock the single life, and connect with the most amazing people. We do not recognize the way in which the implicit prosperity gospel affects us until our unspoken expectations are not met. We understand that God would ask people in the two-thirds world to give up things, to sacrifice, but the heresy hidden under the surface is our belief that God would not ask Western people to deny themselves. And if you're one of the few of us that are, you know, sitting upright and thinking, ha, none of that applies to me, you know, I want to suggest that for those of us who don't particularly care about, you know, hip Instagramming millennials and the way their houses looked or something, uh, that we, we find other ways in which to reach for our own little prosperity gospel. Because... Many of us want to live lives of radical generosity, but we would also like a nice padded bank account um, with enough to pay our bills and to spend on ourselves. Thank you very much. Many of us want to become better, more wise, and more mature men and women, but we don't want to suffer in order to get there. We would just like it without any of the costs. That'd be great. Um, we want humility, but we not if it means being humiliated. <laughs> um, 
We want patience right now. Get it? In short, we, we want the life that Jesus offers. Most of us that recognize or, or, uh, the, the reality of discipleship, we want those things. By, the, by the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we want the life that Jesus offers, but we don't want to die. And following Jesus means that you must know, not fear, know that you are going to die. A thousand little deaths every day all leading to one unfathomably beautiful life. In fact, what Jesus called life to the fullest. As we end tonight, I don't want to manipulate, manipulate you into some emotional but ultimately empty moment, but I do, however, want to make enough space for us to ask this uncomfortable question, what has to die that I might live? Certainly a great many of us uh, when we hear that question, uh, if you're anything like me, you sense an immediate stirring, knowing well the thing or the things in need of swift death in your life because it gnaws at us and it won't let us sleep, no rest, no peace. And the Spirit continues to poke at you and beckon you uh, beautifully and slightly annoyingly, you know. Let it go. And we say, I, I will, I will, but first... And he says, let go. And you say, I will. I just, I need um, a second to, and he says, it has to die. And you say, I know, I know. And, and when I'm ready, and he says, let it go. And tonight I want to end with, with a, a simple sort of exercise. Um, do you guys mind, um, right now, while you're sitting here, you don't have to like close your eyes or dim the lights or anything, but just while you're sitting here and listening to me talk, do your best to clear away mental distractions for a second. Let's just make one second. Ask the Spirit, Spirit, would you come and would you uh, reveal what it is in my life that is becoming an obstruction, that thing that needs to die so that I might live? You can clo close your eyes if that helps or you can just sit there if that's better. Um, now, whenever you sense the Spirit is urging you to relinquish, um, I, I suspect for a lot of us it comes right to our mind's eye. Um, but whatever it is that comes to your mind, imagine that thing, sort of put it front and center in your mind's eye. If it's immaterial, like a habit or a thought pattern or something, then imagine some material representation of that thing in your mind. Now, with that image there, I want to read you one of Jesus' parables. It comes, through, comes from Matthew 13, and this is one of the ways Jesus describes the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. In, uh, in Jesus' time, there are no banks, obviously, so in order to store up money or gold, one might simply bury it in the ground. Of course, if such a person were, were to die or be displaced from their property, their gold was simply lost to the dirt. So in the story, this, this man that Jesus is describing, he's walking through a field and he discovers treasure. And now he's overjoyed, he rushes home, and he quickly sells off everything that he owns, his home, his car, his iPhone, his wardrobe, his interior decoration, whatever it is. He sells all of it instantaneously until nothing remains. Then the man uses that money to buy the field in which the treasure was discovered. Now, that the field and everything in it is legally his because he has obtained it 
with the money uh, that came from selling everything. Now, this man, because he owns this field, is rich. In fact, he's more rich than he would have been if he had clung to all his things. At the end of the day, is this even really a sacrifice that we're talking about? I would argue yes and no. You know, you, you give up a great deal. He sells everything that he has. And there's obviously um, work to be done to do such a thing, the arduous process of getting rid of everything, but he gets more. This is what it's like to follow Jesus. Uh, Jim Elliott, the famous missionary that was killed in Ecuador, he, he famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To end tonight... I want us to count the cost. And here I, I refer not to the cost of discipleship. We've, we've discussed that in great detail. Instead, I want us to count the cost of not following Jesus. Consider the cost of non-discipleship, which is essentially the forfeit of life to the fullest. It is the forfeit of authentic freedom and an ultimate purpose it is the forfeit of hope for yourself, for your family, your kids, the people that you care about. Indeed, it is the forfeit of hope for the universe, for the world in which we live. Jesus isn't asking you to give up a life of meaning and purpose. That's exactly what Jesus offers. The only way to get to a life of meaning and purpose is to give up everything that gets in the way of a life of meaning and purpose. Author David Benner writes, St. Ignatius of Loyola notes that sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until I am absolutely convinced of this, I will do everything I can to keep my hands on the controls of my life because I think I know better than God what I need for my fulfillment. And the question I want us to ask tonight is, are you yet prepared to trust in the goodness of Jesus and in the road to which he directs, the, the narrow road of discipleship? Do you believe that Jesus is trustworthy, that he's not an egomaniac, he's not a dictator, but that Jesus is the one and only good king? Or to put another way, ask yourself, do you believe, really believe, that Jesus is better? With that in mind, let's pray and ask the Spirit to come.